welcome to episode 49 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. In the last episode, we heard the first part of a special tasting at the vaults with Dr Bill Lumsden, the head of distilling and whiskey creation at Glenmorangie and Ardbeg. Dr Bill returned after about to eat to continue his tasting and share his thoughts on various aspects of the whiskey world in his inimitable and outspoken way, always entertaining and illuminating. Here is Dr Bill with part two. So, ladies and gents, we've explored the delights of the Northern Highlands. So now it is time to visit the land of the badger juice, as we call it. So, of course, the name Ardbeg, if you use it in anagram form, turns into the word badger. So within the Glenmorangie Company, we refer to Ardbeg as the land of the badger juice. So that's where we're going to go now. And um, I've never heard that before. Before I retire, die, or get fired, whichever comes first, I'm determined to launch a limited release ard bag called Badger Juice. But I'm having some difficulty with our friends in Paris within LVMH who clearly don't share the same sense of humour as I do. So anyway, Badger Juice. And Andy, um, it's a different layout. So these are my two and these are your two. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Just before we get Just on that point about the dying and that, every time I see you, you tell me you're retiring. Yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah, but I'm not really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, no, I, I worked that yeah. out, Bill. You know, I, 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 <clears throat> a couple of years ago during lockdown, I celebrated a very, very substantial birthday with a zero at the end of it. And basically, now, two years later, I am at the age where the company might want to put me out to pasture. But uh, to be honest, I still think there's so many things I'd like to do uh, within the company, especially running my experimental distillery at Glenmorangie. So I think the reality is that I will die or get fired before I retire. But you know, that, that, that's another conversation for another day. So we bought the Ardbeg distillery in 1997. It produced fabulous cult whiskey which was almost impossible to find in the form of single malt. But there was that real, you know, love of it, that real feeling out there. And that's the main reason why we decided to take a gamble and buy the distillery. It took us 15 years before we finally bought the fabric of the distillery back to a standard we were happy with but we inherited a very unusual stock profile. So the distillery itself was closed from early 1981 right through to the end of 1989. So there was a whopping great hole in the stock profile. So when the Glenmorangie company shelled out our not unsubstantial to us at that time, 7.7 million pounds, we obviously wanted to start bringing a little bit of return in. So the, the, the Ardbeg brand had typically been bottled as a 10-year-old on the few occasions that Allied Domecq actually released a single malt. So in 1997, the stock from 1990 onwards, 
So 90, 91, 92, right up to the beginning of 96 when it was finally closed, was clearly too young to be bottled as a 10-year-old, whereas the youngest of the old stock, i.e. 1979 and 1980s, there was hardly anything in 81, was too old to be bottled as a 10-year-old. So that's why we, our first release was the almost legendary Ardbeg 17-year-old. Mm. Because guess what? In 1997, even I can work this out, the 1980 <coughs> stock was 17 years old. But the kind of um, curved ball in there was that in 78, 79 and 80, Allied Domecq were doing experimental production at Ardbeg using either totally unpeated or very mm. lightly peated malted barley. So that's why the 17-year-old was a much more <coughs> gentle offering. And it's also the main reason why I have always refused to reintroduce the 17-year-old. But that may well change in the next year or so, because of course, I have been laying down experimental batches of mm. unpeated Ardbeg. So we'll see what, what happens there. So is that Blasda, that unpeated spirit from that uh, period? Blasda was our first offering of unpeated, but that was just for a bit of fun. But and that was your own distillation. Yeah, yeah, it was, from, that was yeah. Eight, eight years old yeah. when we bottled mm. it. So following on from the 17-year-old, we then released a number of single-year mm. vintages which also by now have cult status. So the 78 was the first, mm -hmm. the 75 was the second, and 75 was what I would describe as a disgraceful whiskey, but in a good way. You know, I was so peaty and oily and diesel and treacly, it was almost undrinkable. Then we had my own particular favorite of that series, the 1977 vintage which I felt have, had beautiful fudge and butterscotch, butterscotch notes in amongst the smokiness. And then finally, in the year 2000, we were able to reintroduce the 10-year-old because the 1990 stock, guess what, had reached 10 years old. I know, we, we, we played around with the recipe of the 10-year-old for a few years before I was happy with it. At the same time, as soon as that was launched, I was tasked with coming up with a new expression of Ardbeg. So something that would possibly be sustainable mm. going forwards, but something which would maybe be slightly differentiated, especially from the 17-year-old and the 10-year-old. Mm. So the end result of that is this little baby here, Ardbeg Ugadal. So very personal to me because this was my first creation when I went into the job, uh, my, the predecessor of the job I do today. Because I, I was Glenmore Distillery Manager from 94 to 98. So it was 98, 99, I got my sticky hands on both Ardbeg and Glen Murray as well. So this is probably the first of my personal offerings. And um, it's quite interesting that we decided to launch this as an NAS, a non-age statement whiskey. And it was probably one of the first of the new wave. Now, back in the day, if any of you are lucky enough to have some old bottlings, I mean, from the 1950s and earlier, a lot of these malt whiskies had no age statement on them. It might say old, 
It might say very old or it might say very, very old, but generally it wasn't actually that old. So this was, I, I, there's possibly was one or two other ones, but I can't quite remember what they were. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that fact is that almost nobody has ever really asked me what's the age of Ardbeg Ugadal? You know, who gives a fuck? What does it taste like? That's the real key here. And the first vattings of Ardbeg Ugadal, I was actually using sherry matured stock from the 1970s and blending that together with stock from the early 1990s. Now, obviously that was not going to be sustainable going forwards but I created a taste profile which I felt I would be able to recreate. Now, obviously today in 2022, I'm not putting any 1970s stock into the van. That just, I'd get, I absolutely would get fired for doing that. Because um, we still have some old, old Ardbeg from the 1970s, not an awful lot, but we've still got some. But the, the, the average age of Ugadal, again, between us girls, because I'm not really allowed to say this, is typically between nine and 14 years old. And it varies from batch to batch. But the heart of the recipe is using ard bags which have been wholly matured in sherry casks. A combination of first fill, but primarily refill sherry casks and that's roughly about 40% of the recipe, and the remaining 60% is so-called classic Ardbeg, essentially 10 to 11 years old from ex-bourbon barrels. And you know, even if I say it myself, I've, I think I've done a reasonable job with trying to maintain the taste profile of Ardbeg Ugadal. So when myself and Hamish Torrey, the wonderful former brand manager, mm for Ardbeg launched this, we decided that rather than do it at 40%, 43%, 46% non-chill filtered, we released it, is it 54.2? Yeah, 54.2. I mean, Hamish and I had some logic in these times, and it was something to do with the proofing strength of gunpowder, <laughs> that, you know, 100% alcohol and gunpowder exploded mm. at that strength. I mean, it was something highly unlikely, but it, se it seemed like a good story, and we've stuck with it ever since. Mm -hmm. Well, our members are used to these odd ABVs, of yeah. course. So. so, on the nose, guess what? This is not Glenmorangie. You know, there's something a bit different in here. And I just find these lovely tarry, creosote type notes, but it's intertwined with some of the lovely notes from the sherry cast, and the combination makes me think of hickory smoked ham, or barbecue spare ribs, or something like that. And again, because this is a 54.2, I'm going to just cut this with a little bit water, see what else I can coax out of it. The name, incidentally, uh, comes from the loch up on the hillside where we draw the water from. So, you know, in case anyone doesn't realise that marketeers are utterly useless, not only did I give Hamish the finished whisky, the taste profile, I even suggested the name for it as well. 
Is that because the peaty flavour comes from the water bill? Eh, uh, now, you know as well as I do that that's complete BS. All right, all right. <laughs> the, the water is dark brown in colour, but you know, in, in my opinion, <clears throat> that contributes almost nothing to the final peatiness of the whiskey. It all comes from the, the malted barley. So the water doesn't matter at all? That's not what I said. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> of course it does, and it's very different water from the Tarlogi spring water at Glenmorangie. Yeah. It's much softer, it's quite acidic. I think the pH is about six okay. for that, and it is dark brown in colour, but you know, by the time you boil it up in the heating tanks for mashing, the colour's all gone. Yeah. So with water, now I'm getting this most distinctive and most classic Ardbeg note, which I sometimes describe as being like pine resin, sometimes like fennel, and sometimes even like lime juice. As ridiculous as that sounds. Do any of you here know a lovely French lady called Martine Nouet? Yes. Who, who has done work for the Scotch Milk Whiskey mm. Society. Uh, Martin always described Ardbeg to me as being like sparadrap, which is Sonia Band-Aid, elastoplast and lime juice. And I find that, and that's how I would always pick out an Ardbeg in a blind tasting of Isla whiskies. In the same way as with Beaumore, you're looking for that slightly lavendery soap powder type note. Mm. With Ardbeg, you should find fennel, pine resin, or maybe even a hint of lime juice. And with water in it now, I can find that. Don't worry if you don't, it doesn't matter, as long as you enjoy it. So we try a sip. Mm -hmm. Now guess what, at 54.2, percent ABV even with water in it. This is not going to be a soft silky mellow mouthfeel. This is spicy, this is fiery, this is dancing about your palate. You know it's almost like chili flakes. I think myself and Rachel who wrote the tasting notes for this at the time described it as being like a Christmas pudding that had been set on fire and then you're eating the pudding while it's still burning. So it's got that nice raisiny sweetness, mm. lots of spice in there, but there's a lot of heat in there. But you know, there's a lot going on in this whiskey. And if you sit down and compare this directly with the 10 year old, the 10 year old Arbeg is much rawer and saltier than this is. And I, I just love the fact that the sherry casts in here have harmoniously blended with the base smokiness and just taken the edge off it a little bit. Yeah, well, that's So that's Ardbeg Ugadal. <clears throat> and you know, the, 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 the Loch Ugadal is one of the bigger lochs on the island of Isla, which means that even in a dry summer, Ardbeg generally does not have to stop production. Mm -hmm. Whereas half of the distilleries in Isla do have to because they run out of water. And the water runs down into an intermediate loch, which is called Loch Arinambeshtje. Or the locals in Isla call it Loch Irnan. And I've never worked out why. I know that Ugadal means dark, mysterious place. I know that Arinambeshtje means the pasture of the animals or the beasts. But I haven't a clue what Irnan means. But there you go. No idea, I'm afraid. Right. <clears throat> so, 
That's the first of our two Ard Begs. Any questions or comments, ladies and gents? I mean, I mean to, to be honest, uh, initially I was very reluctant to do that. Uh, and for, for Ardbeg Ugedal, the sherry matured element is actually wholly matured in the sherry cask. It's not finished in it, which is why I have a higher proportion of refill sherry than first fill sherry. And I just wondered if a short finishing was actually going to make any difference to a whiskey as smoky as Ardbeg. But you know, belatedly, over the last five or six years, I've been dabbling a bit more in finishing. But for me personally, finishing is very much the, the regime of Glenmorangie rather than Ardbeg. So most of my Ardbeg day releases are made like this, whereas a, a whole maturation in a different cask type forms the heart of the recipe, which is then vatted together with so-called classic Ardbeg from bourbon barrels. Yeah. Following on from my fascinating comment about Badger and Ardbeg, if anyone's interested, Glen Morangy as an anagram translates into a ginger lemon <laughs> or a ginger melon. And guess what? In Glenmorangie, you find the flavours of ginger, melon, and lemon. How clever is that? I think there might have been a question here. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if you've ever questioned what, what type of sherry it is, but also if you've ever tried Amontillado finish, because I've had a, a lovely Port Charlotte that was quite heavily beaded Amontillado finish, and also Brunard. Um, yep. Um, I, I've tried every type of sherry you can think of. I've even tried some sherries that don't exist for Ardbeg. But yeah, certainly for, for sorry, I've been flipping here, for, for Ugedal, it's all Oloroso. And I've tried many others. We, we've had a number of Ardbeg releases from Amontillado cast. I, I've used Amontillado more for Glenmorangie than I have for Ardbeg because it you notice more of a difference there. And certainly Amontillado is absolutely my favourite style of sherry, whether it's Fino Manthania, Palacota, blah, blah, blah. I think Amontillado hits the beautiful middle sweet spot there. So, yeah, so I, I have used it, but the, the, the challenge with Ardbeg is that Amontillado and Palo Cortado are arguably more subtle than Oloroso or PX, so you don't necessarily pick up all of the goodness. But please do hold that thought for a few minutes because we're going to taste another Ardbeg which has been finished in sherry casks. Any other questions? Yep. So as much as I am a massive repeat aficionado, I'm curious as to how the world's changing, sustainability, eco-friendly. Yeah. What's going to happen with more of the idea Right, okay. So that, that's a very, very big question. And the good news is because it would, I, I could spend an hour answering that question alone. 
Andy interviewed me before this, and that was one of the questions. So on the, is it a podcast you're going to do? Yeah. yeah. I'll answer that more fully. But the, the reality is that the way the regulations stand at the moment, we absolutely will not be allowed to use artificial peat. Now, in the very fullness of time, we might be driven towards that. But the reality is that the amount of peat that is extracted and used in the Scotch whisky industry is way less than 5% of the total peat that's extracted. But it, within our industry, we take our environmental and sustainable credentials very seriously indeed. So as an industry, <coughs> and myself and my colleagues sit in a number of the Scotch Whisky Association committees, we are looking very seriously at this, finding ways of either reducing the amount of peat we use to give the same flavour, or in reinstating peat mosses. So, you know, it's easy for me to stand here on my pulpit and say, we are not the dirty men in the peat usage industry, but it's something we all have to tackle. But, you know, the vast majority of peat extracted goes into grow bags and things in the, in the horticulture industry. But we, we're on it. We're all over it like a rash. There's some really, really interesting, innovative, innovative research looking at how we mitigate against this potential yeah. loss of, a tr of one yeah. of our raw materials. Yeah. Um, efficiency is obviously a, a, a one of the approaches but also some quite yeah quite innovative thinking uh, you know flying a little kite here you could imagine that your your bourbon barrel has been used five or six times so there's no longer any goodness in there if you ground that down into oak chips and burnt it that would give an interesting range of flavors and you know in, in a previous life I've actually tried that in a pilot plan. At the moment, it's not legal, but you can see various things like that potentially happening in the future. There's, a, there's another interest, and I might get you to comment on this then. So there's another sort of more, more, more nuanced <laughs> element to this. So the premise of your question is that we can't use peat at <coughs> all, I guess. That we get to a point where, yeah, well, yeah. No, exactly, but, but, but I mean, that's, that's a possibility. We, cannot, we can't use peat at all. Mm -hmm. But there's also the potential that we may have to actually start extracting peat from different locations, less environmentally sensitive locations, or arguably one of the ways that we could maybe mitigate against other developments. So, you know, the A9's been widened, right? Um, they're cutting a huge amount of peat out there. Can we make use of that? Wind farms have been built. Can we take the peat that's been mm -hmm. cut out of there and use that? But the thing is, is we know that not all peat is, is, is equal and that we get different flavour characteristics from people in different locations. And if you want to pick up on that and comment on Ardberg and terroir. Okay, so um, again, this whole idea of terroir is very clearly understood and easily demonstrated in the world of wine here. And if, if there's any fans of Pinot Noir wine here in the audience, which I am myself, to me, I wouldn't even bother with anything unless it was burgundy mm. because I just think that takes it to its ultimate conclusion. And, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious here because I have tasted one or two acceptable Pinot Noirs from elsewhere in the world. You paid far to, more than we to, are, To me, burgundy is where it's at. And I think you're getting not just the Pinot Noir grape, but you're getting this huge influence of terroir, 
and the skill and knowledge of the, the <coughs> Burgundian winemakers. So to answer Andy's question, and clearly I'm flanneling here and playing for time, because it's a very divisive question and it's not well understood. But there's no question that the type of veg fossilized vegetation that makes up the peat moss in Aberdeenshire or in Isla or in Ireland or in Exmoor or wherever will be a little bit different. But my, my argument as a distiller and a scientist is that that difference, once you've burnt it and used it to dry malted barley, which you've then ground, mashed, fermented, distilled and aged for many years, I don't believe that you'll actually pick up on that difference. And I, I'd love to be proven wrong here but I don't think that difference carries right <clears throat> through into our final product. That's, that's interesting. I think, I think that's the argument that applies to a lot of these yeah. terroir arguments about whether yeah. the barley makes any difference, yeah. barley variety, where the barley's grown. No, that, that's a different question entirely. I appreciate Andy. that, but does it survive maturation, I think, is always my shorthand. I, and you know, for, for my little forays into using different barley varieties, like um, Glenmorangie to sale, for example, mm -hmm. I used primarily refill barrels for that because the small differences in the new make spirit I wanted still to be detectable in the final product and if I, if I was going to whack it into really active first fill bourbon barrels with all their fabulous peachy fruit their lovely silky vanilla their sweet coconut blah 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 you would lose a lot of that yeah so okay. you, right you, we'll argue about it later <laughs> I, I, the, simple, the simple reality is I'm right and you're wrong. No, well, okay? no, 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 I realise that. As long as you realise <laughs> no, 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 no. that. <laughs> actually, in fairness to Billy, he did actually give me a really useful uh, bit of um, advice or knowledge. <laughs> Ten years ago or more, stood in the back room there about this whole terroir thing, which is oh, I've always remembered and always used. But you are still wrong. Um, I, I've changed my mind since then a little bit, Andy. Have you? To be fair, yeah. So I, I thought I detected a little bit yeah. of a, yeah, barley yeah. variety. Yeah. Are we talking variety here it makes a difference? I, I think primarily that, yes, but the, the reality is that with the multiple stages of production exactly. to make Scotch whiskey, each time you're, you're dumbing down the difference. And I know our, our, our old friend, Mr. Fucking bastard. Mr. Rainey. I think um, we know what we're talking um, about, yeah. yeah. Um, He's probably mm. right. Does he have bad dreams or night terroirs? I, I hope he does. <laughs> Sincerely hope he does. But yeah, you know, at, at the end, of the, once you've made a mature whiskey, it's much more difficult to pick up the nuances yeah. of terroir compared to a wine. Uh, I, would, I would agree. Let, let, let's stop digging a hole for ourselves, Andy. But I just wanted to ask you, is, is that genetics or is that, does it process differently? Is that flavour or does it process differently? Uh, I think a little bit of both, and you, you know as well as I do that winter barley varieties, yes. as a result of what we call the regularity principle, has higher levels of protein, uh -huh. which take a different style of malting to modify the protein, and if you don't do that, it's more difficult to process in the distillery, but there's so many different things going yeah. on here. I was going to ask you actually that about your new Morangy, trying to, are you going to be able to process winter barley there? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Good. Because I think we're going to need to, yep. as an industry. Yeah. Just simple production requirement. Mm. 
Sorry, it's getting a little bit esoteric, and I'm also trying to <laughs> needle him a little bit and provoke him. It's not quite worked yet. We'll get there. Andy, I've been married for 33 <laughs> years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> needling just water yeah. off a duck's back. Yeah, okay. Likewise. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and you can say that to your mum, Alexandra, I don't care. <laughs> How do I wind him up? I'll come up with something. Right, okay, so look, while yes. Andy thinks of some, something else to try and wind me up, <laughs> let me tell you the joke about the one-legged alcoholic Peter. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> let, let's taste the next whiskey. And, and thank you for the introduction, sir, to this. So I decided just to, to bring something along which you might not otherwise have been able to taste. Um, I was at the Ardbeg <coughs> Distillery on Friday last week and had a, I, I had a sniff around the visitor centre and thought, yep, I remember this whisky. I remember why I did it. And some of you may remember one of our limited release Ardbegs called Ardbog. Once again, my goodness, how clever are these marketeers? <laughs> and using Manthania sherry casks, which of course, Manthania comes from San Lucar de Baramida in the Sherry Triangle and is renowned for making these very, very salty, briny aperitif style sherries. I thought that, that would be nice. And it was the idea, which again, myself and Hamish, um, and don't get me wrong, ladies and gents, Hamish is a marketeer, but I'm every bit as, a, as big a bullshitter as he is. And we had this idea of trying to bring the concept of a salty, marshy peat bog alive. So I thought, Manthania sherry with its saltiness. So most of the whiskey that I laid down after 10 years in American Oak X bourbon barrels and then re-racked into the Manthania sherry, so this was a genuine finish, were all bottled as Ardbog, which was one of the more popular of the Ardbeg day varieties. But I always like to tuck something away for a rainy day and seldom bottle out everything that I produce. So what we have here is one of the very, very few remaining Ardbog casts. This is now 16 years old. So it's been 10 years in bourbon cast and six years in the Manthania sherry. Andy, I can't even read the strength of that. Can, Can you see try? that without my specs? 50.3. Yeah. 50 so not quite up there with the Ugadal, but still quite substantial. And it's got this incredible deep, deep bronze color. And for our Ardbeg whiskies and the vast majority of my Glenmorangies, we do not use caramel coloring. I'd actually like to see the use of caramel banned in the Scotch whisky industry. I don't think it'll ever happen in my lifetime, and I have lobbied the SWA on it, but they just laughed at me and told me to thing. go away. So um, anyway, so, so this is natural, this color. This is the lovely salty, briny residue of the Manthania cast that's been leached into this. And on the nose, if you've still got some of your Ugadal left, and you go back to that. Damn. You know, the, the, the Ugadal now, to me, is much more savory in note, which it should be the other way around, because the Ugadal is oloroso, but I think a lot of the sweetness has disappeared, and on the nose, with, with the single cask, I'm getting this nice, 
almost flinty minerality. And again, this lovely idea of aniseed flavored toffee. So once again, Andy, release the serpent before tasting. So. And now with water, there's this incredible burst. It's almost like savory crackers or rye mm. bread mm. or something like that. Lots of cereal there. Yeah, there's a lot of gristiness in yeah, there. Gristy cereal. So if any of you are fortunate enough to wander into an old-fashioned Dunnage warehouse mm -hmm. on the island of Isla, so whether you're at Lagavulin or Lafroy <coughs> or Ardbeg or whatever, you get this almost slight mustiness, but not mm. quite. Mm. Sometimes it makes me think of a freshly waxed barber jacket. I don't know, do it, have any of you ever re-waxed your barber jackets? Bloody hell. I mean, what a chore that is. But you know, after you've spent hours making a mess of your kitchen, wasting several tubs of wax, and finally get it right with the sponge, and a, a hairdryer is essential to spread the wax round, you get that very distinctive smell. And I get a little bit of that in the nose of this. You just reminded me about one of my most memorable ever distillery visit experiences. I've seen, obviously seen quite a few distilleries in my time. Ardbeg on a hot summer's day, looking into one of those warehouses at the back and you could see the angel share. Yep. You could yep. literally see this haze yep. of, of evaporating spirit. And it was yep. a really quite a special, special yep. moment actually. Yep. I, I, I know um, exactly where Andy's coming you, from here. You the the atmospherics are right, you can almost see it. You can almost see it disappearing up there. You, you could. And, and you know, from a sustainability perspective, that is another massive challenge the Scotch whisky industry has because we lose so much by evaporative aging. And the challenge is we, we can stop it. It's, it's not very practical and you could imagine wrapping your barrels in cling film several times. And it has been tried and it does work to a certain extent. But if you stop the ingress and egress of oxygen, if you stop the whiskey breathing, then you're going to minimize some of the oxidative aging of the products, which leads to complexity. And if anyone's remotely interested, I think the reason why my favorite Japanese single malt whiskey is Yoichi mm. is because the vast majority of their stock is matured in Hokkaido, the North Island, where conditions are cool and damp, just like they are in Scottyland. Whereas in large parts of Honshu, the main island, the, the, the very extreme heat in the summer drives wood extractives and it gives a different style mm. of aging. Mm -hmm. Anyway. You've just said a whole load of things that yeah. I could happily stand here and debate to, in some detail. The oxidation bit, for one. But let, let's see how we got on. Yeah, we will. So, um, again, if you remember me talking about that thing, Rancio, which we got to a certain extent with, with the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, Glen Morangy cask with the, the PX. I'm getting a little bit of that now, and it's not sourness. It's not sharpness, mm. there's just a little bit of a You could imagine this drawing your cheeks together as you drink it. And I don't mean these cheeks. So let's put that to the test. 
Again, this is completely non-chill filtered. So there, there's almost a chewiness to it. Mm. And I often say that you don't drink an Ardbeg whiskey, you eat it because there's so much going on there. There's this lovely chewy mouth coating sensation in there. The primary flavor I get from this <clears throat> is this kind of salty, salted caramel toffee or something like that, which is not unexpected because this it, it's a salty, savory sherry manthanilla. I'm going to try it again, Andy, just to... Yeah. Compared to the Ugadal, this is now on the taste most definitely much more savoury. I'd say the taste profile is less complex, but it's more bold and more defined. And I'm getting some lovely notes of charcoal or creosote or tar, which again are very classic Ardbeg peaty flavours in there. That was very sooty. Mm. Dry peatiness, smokiness. So ladies and gents, that, that is the, the, the final whiskey in our tasting tonight. And as I say, th this has almost sold out at the distillery, but I thought I'd bring it along for a little treat for you. Mm, thank you. Since we're talking about um, perhaps some strange things coming out of our big, explain perhaps some other thing behind things like Supernova. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now, this could be a very, very contentious debate here because the peating level of malted barley for Scotch whiskey to me is a little bit like the Bugatti Chiron, which apparently has been recorded doing 303 miles an hour. But nobody who ever buys that car will remotely drive it at that. So what's the point in it? So that, that's the first thing I would say. Okay. There are two different ways of measuring the level of peat in your malted barley. There is a wet chemistry technique called the McFarlane or indophenol method, which extracts the peaty compounds, then as a colorimetric reaction, and you measure it in a spectrophotometer. And that's the way most of the industry measures the, the phenolic compounds in their malted barley. And if we do that for Ardbeg, typically it's between 50 and 65 ppm. You can also do an extraction of the malted barley and measure it by HPLC, which is high performance liquid chromatography. And if you do that, it measures a wider range of phenolic compounds. So your 50 to 65 would translate more into 85 to 100 ppm. So it just depends on what your measurement is and what you're quoting. Point three about this is that the, the, the reality is that, you know, the only way to truly reflect the peaty taste of a whiskey is to actually measure the phenolic compounds in the final whiskey. <clears throat> And when you do that, you can back calculate to give you a fairly accurate estimation of what the peating level of the malted barley was. Roughly, you, you've lost 50 to 55% of the phenols during the processing. So when you do that, that to me is the only way to truly measure the peatiness of a whiskey. And guess what? When you do that with a range of many different whiskies out there produced in the Scotch whiskey industry, 
there's a bit of smoke and mirrors going on there. <laughs> But to get to the final, and I know there's, a, there's going to be another tricky question coming uh, here. Yeah, no. <clears throat> to get to the final point, um, supernova, by our very honest uh, estimation, our honest estimation was about 125 ppm. In the barley? In the barley. Right, yeah. so remember, in the barley. Did you adjust your cut points when you distilled Yes, it? we did, Andy, okay. because... Um, it, it, if you, you lose a lot of the phenolic compounds mm. in the faints, yep. so if you cut your distillation cut points more into the faints, you run the risk of taking some of these lovely sweaty, cereally type flavours in, but mm. you capture more of the phenolic compounds. So yes, very, very, gosh, very astute. Thank you, Bill. I take it all back. You, no. you actually know what you're talking and about. As we were, <laughs> and as we talked about earlier. You're talking about measuring phenols. Yeah. And what we know is that we don't really understand peaty character. And although we always talk about parts per million phenol, it's certainly not all about phenolic compounds. Mm. We know this because if you adjust the pH and strip all of the phenols out of a peaty whiskey sample, it still smells kind of burnt. Yep. yep. And we don't know what the compounds responsible are. We're trying to find out but it certainly isn't the whole picture. And I think that's much more interesting than arguing about whether you've got 80 ppm or 125 yeah. ppm. Yeah. Because in terms of the, you know, because, you know, peaty whiskey isn't just peaty whiskey. Yeah. There's a huge variety. That's what we're all about, yeah. which is why we bottle whiskeys from all those different distilleries. I, I, again, it goes back to the, the key question. Does it actually taste good? Yes. But you, again, a lovely segue in there. I have a bottle here tonight of the soon-to-be-released Ardbeg Hypernova, which according once again to our ruthlessly honest and accurate estimation is about 180 to 200 ppm phenol. And you know, from my taste, from my perspective, it's utterly disgraceful in terms of taste. I, I hate it, that but is, I know lots of people will like that it. That is a disgrace. Cheese-related. Yeah. Um, but another point. At what point can we actually no longer taste any increase in the amount of peatiness? I, I mean, I, where I, are we saturated? I, I, I cannot answer that question, no, Andy, I don't but know I, I would suggest that once you get up to 150 and above... I, uh, my guess is less than that, yeah, much yeah, less than that. Yeah. But I think you're probably right. At risk of um, make, putting ourselves in a difficult position. Yeah, so do you think there is a call for a standardisation of the testing Used for measuring TPM within whiskey is well, the units within beer. Yeah. If you go between, you see measurements going up to two, three thousands, where in reality you can only reach to about two hundred units of IBUs. Yeah. Yeah. There is a big call for the standardisation. Well, the, the testing it, of PPM. It, it, it's a it's a very very good comparison with the IBU units, and my answer to that is yes, I absolutely do think that, and I personally think that instead of this cock-swinging competition about who's got the peatiest malt, you should only be allowed to quote the phenolic level in your final whiskey. Yeah, agreed. Based uh, on HPLC or it, I, I, I would say probably HPLC at that stage because it's, it, yeah, it's more accurate yeah, yeah. and it, it mops all the phenols up. Exactly. So, yeah, agreed. I like it, I like your thinking. Agreed, right. yeah. Going back to Moringen, do you have any crystal malt? You 
you said you tried custom order. I don't know if you actually have any mature. I can neither confirm <laughs> nor deny the use of crystal malt at both Glenmorangie and our big distilleries. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I, I said I can neither confirm or deny. Are there any, any more questions over here? Right, okay. Um, you need any competence? Yeah, where, where, where's the, the, the bottle, Sonia? I'll get that, Bill. Right. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> now, I, I, I need my friends from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society to help police this. So I don't want people to shout the answer out. So if anyone knows the answer, please put your hand up. And the first person to put their hand up will be given the opportunity to... Um, Opportunity to, 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 to win this. So my and everything I'm going to ask you, I have actually said during my presentation tonight. So for the Glenmorangie, what was the name of the founder of Glenmorangie Distillery's first pet cat? Okay, I, I, I didn't say that. I, I, I didn't actually say that at all. Um, my, my quite simple question for this is, after waxing lyrical about hard water and the potentially contentious discussion we have on that, we draw our water at Glenmorangie from a spring which is called... Tarlogie Spring, yes. So a bottle of Glenmorangie, A Tale of Winter. And, um, yeah, this, I'm just checking this hasn't been opened. So, so th 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 this is a bottle of the truly remarkably grim <laughs> or utterly wonderfully fantastic Ardbeg Hypernova, depending on your perspective. And again, I'm, I'm staying on the theme of water here. So everyone knows that the loch the water comes from is called Ugadal. It flows down into an intermediate loch called Arinambestia, but the locals in Isla call it something else. Irnan. Yep. Well done. Right. God, that was too easy. Good <laughs> stuff. And should we, uh, yep. should we wrap it up? Okay. Um, unless there's any other quick questions, go on. Talk quite a lot. He has talked quite a lot, you're right. <laughs> which sometimes goes well, yeah. but I assume sometimes it doesn't. So, what, what do you do with a stock that doesn't? Yep, uh, uh, get, uh, what was your best failure? Right, it, it, what was it, your best it's, failure? It, it, it's, uh, I, I can easily answer that. Uh, that's Ardbeg fair mutation. Hmm because I was on the cusp of having the customs and excise come in and destroy the incredibly sour fermented wash because the boiler had broken down. But then I thought, no, you've always wanted to do a lambic style fermentation. Here's your chance. So we turned that round, a three week long fermentation with incredibly sour soapy wash, which we distilled in 13 years later. It was bottled and sold as Ardbeg Fermutation which sold out in 45 minutes. So that, that's my favorite failure. The answer to your question is that in reality, our strike rate is pretty high and it's way less than 5% doesn't work. 
Um, if it's truly, truly bad, you can either destroy it, and that, that seldom happens. I, I, I've had some batches which have been in casks which were heavily bacterially infected, and the, 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 the acetic acid and everything carried right through, and it was like vinegar. So that got destroyed. But generally, you can blend it away. Now, in the days when our company did blended scotch, that was a lot easier. But, you know, it, it's seldom that bad that it has to be destroyed. Good. Well, we'll wrap, <coughs> excuse me, we'll, I think we'll wrap up the formal part of the tasting there. I guess we're going to be around so we can, we can chat. Stick around. Um, thanks to all of you for coming and for your uh, enthusiasm and attention and your interesting and insightful questions. And of course, thank you to, to Dr. Bill for bringing some fabulous whiskies <clears throat> and some arguably interesting knowledge and information with him. <laughs> arguably. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bill. Pleasure. You know, can I just leave you with one thought, ladies and gents, that you know, tonight we're speaking to a fairly serious, experienced audience who are clearly well used to their single malt whiskies. And you know, Andy and I are geeks like yourself. We take it very seriously, but I think you should never lose sight of the mm. fact that drinking whiskey should be a fun pleasurable thing and you know, for example to the gentleman who won the bottle of a tail of winter you know the, the packaging and things don't get too hung up about it and we got quite highly criticized by some of our industry peer group and whenever that happens i think yes that means we're successful mm -hmm. because we've got under their skin but don't lose sight of the fact that drinking good wine or beer or, or whiskey should be all about obviously drinking responsibly, but having fun. See, so, you know, don't, don't take things too seriously. And a lot of the times in our marketing, particularly for the land of the badger juice, we're being ever so slightly tongue in cheek. So, so thank you on behalf of the Glenmorangie Company and the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, thank you all so much for coming along this evening. Slanji Distillery visits and exclusive presentations from some of the biggest names in the whisky world are just one of the perks of being a member of the SMWS. So if you haven't signed up yet, go to our website at smws.com and check it out. That's it for this episode of Whisky Talk. Until the next time, cheers. <laughs>